So here we are in the third Sunday of Advent, and we just lit the joy candle. Joy seemed to have jumped the gun just a bit, don't you think? Shouldn't we save joy for the actual birth of Jesus? Maybe Advent is just a little more laid back than Lent. You know, in the 40 days of Lent, we tuck away the alleluias, and they don't come out until Easter morning. The Advent candles, hope and peace. Yeah, those make sense this time of year. We lit those on the first week and the second week. Even the love candle that we're going to light next week seems appropriate. But joy seems a little premature. John the Baptist certainly didn't get the memo on joy. In his opening remarks to the crowds, he called the people who were coming to him for baptism a brood of snakes. Quite the insult. Do you remember in Genesis, after Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit, that the Lord God cursed the serpent with a life of crawling on its belly, eating dust, and enduring an ongoing animosity between snake and humans? John could learn a thing or two from Dale Carnegie on how to win friends and influence people. But John wasn't really in the business of public relations, just like his dad. His father, Zechariah, was a priest who served in the temple, a respectable job. John, on the other hand, was a bit of an eccentric, out in the desert, far, far away from the respectable temple. John was a prophet whose main responsibility was to warn the crowds of the consequences of remaining on their current path and not turning them back, had to call them back so that they would follow God. According to our scripture passage today that Matthew just read for us, Advent is a season where repentance is an appropriate spirit and The way to Christ often leads through the desert. This reminds me of a time when Jesus saw an old man who was crying in the desert. Jesus went up to him and asked him what was wrong. The old man replied, I'm looking for my son, but I can't find him, and I'm beginning to lose hope. Having compassion on the man, Jesus offered to help him look for his son. After some time and no luck in finding him, Jesus asked the man if his son had a birthmark or or something to help recognize him. The old man said, yes, he had nails driven on his hands and feet. Jesus immediately hugged the man and he said, father. The old man screamed happily, Pinocchio. (laughs) Across the biblical witness, The desert or wilderness is often a place where human need encounters God's gracious provision. The need is as unique as each one of us. Our need can be in the realms of physical, spiritual, or emotional healing. It can be as profound as a feeling of emptiness and lacking purpose, or as bone-chilling as loneliness. When you find yourself in the desert, can you identify your need, and can you ask God to meet you there? Well, some sort of need drove ordinary people into the desert where John the Baptist was preaching. Perhaps the people who gathered around John recognized the ways that they had fallen short. 
how they had broken covenant with God and with one another. Maybe they wanted to live more faithfully, but they didn't know how. Perhaps they were overwhelmed or frightened and had nowhere else to turn. Maybe they had a deep longing for the Messiah, and they so wanted to be ready to receive him. Whatever it was, clearly they wanted it bad enough that they weren't deterred by John's harsh words and tone. Just imagine being on the receiving end of this. I'm going to give you my best prophet. You bunch of venomous snakes. Don't think you're getting any special privilege just because you're sitting here in church in the morning. God can turn that pile of rocks into churchgoers. Prove. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned back to God, or you're going to be chopped down like a fruitless tree and thrown into the fire. Even now, God's hand is on the axe, taking aim and ready to swing. Ouch. I don't think you're venomous snakes. But I find it interesting that rather than shrinking back or stomping away in anger, the crowd asked a refreshingly pragmatic question. What then shall we do? The question seems tinged with curiosity and urgency. John's answer to the crowd dealt with the injustices and the inequities of that society, which are echoed throughout Luke, pointing to the social implications of this gospel. John tells them all, food and clothing must be shared with those who have none. I wonder what John would say to us, the crowd gathered here today. Sharing food and clothing still seems to be relevant in 2021. The number of people we serve in our food pantry alone confirms that need. You know, one of the things I like best about the passage that we just heard is that in addition to this generic call to love neighbors through generously sharing what we have, John also offered specific instructions to address particular needs of ordinary people like you and me. To the tax collectors who often demanded more tax than what was actually due, John says, stop stealing from your neighbors. Don't be greedy. To the soldiers, John said, stop victimizing the poor people with threats, intimidation, and blackmail. The peasants on the land do not exist as sources for supplementing your income. Notice that John doesn't tell them to quit their jobs or to become a monk or even to go on a pilgrimage. John's message is to live out the calling God has on your life in whatever context you find yourself. If you are a barista, make lattes with care and treat your customers well. If you're a college student, study hard, call your mother, <laughs> and keep an eye out for the kids sitting by himself. If you're a CPA or a banker, be a good one, be fair and kind. If you're retired, play some, volunteer some, and pay close, close attention to a new call that God may be placing on your heart. Make room in your ordinary life 
for the Christ child to be born. I read a story about the manager of a Wendy's who was searching for someone to work just three hours a day, only at lunchtime. He went through all the applications, and most people were working for full-time or at least 20 hours a week. This was 1979, so he had a lot of applications. But he only found one looking for part-time work for that lunch hour. The applicant's name was Nikki. When the manager called, Nikki wasn't home, but his mom said he would be there for the interview. The next day, when Nikki walked in, the manager's heart skipped a beat. By his physical appearance and speech, it was obvious that Nikki had Down syndrome. The manager was young and sheltered. He had never interacted on a professional level with someone with Down syndrome. He had no clue what to do, so he went ahead and interviewed him. Well, Nikki was a wonderful young man, great outlook, task-focused, excited to be alive. So he hired him to run the grill three hours a day, three days a week. The manager let the staff know what to expect, and unfortunately, some were not happy to hear about this new hire. Nikki, on the other hand, was so excited to be working there. He stood at the time clock, literally shaking with anticipation at just the right time, he clocked in, and he started his training. It turned out Nikki couldn't multitask, but he was a machine on the grill. Back in that day, there were no computer screens to work from. Every order was called out by the cashier, so it took a great deal of concentration on the part of the whole production staff to get the order right. When Nikki was training during his very first shift, the sandwich maker next to him asked the trainer, what was on the next sandwich? Nikki replied, single, no pickle, no onion. A few minutes later, it happened again. It was then that they discovered that Nikki had a hidden and valuable skill. He memorized everything he heard. Photographic hearing, what a gift. And soon, every sandwich maker requested to work with Nikki. He was immediately accepted by the entire crew. Nikki's mom would come in at 2 o'clock to pick him up. More times than not, the crew would be in the back, hamming it up with him. Well, one day, as the manager was going back to get, to get him, Nikki's mom said something that he never forgot. She said, let him stay there as long as he wants. He has never been accepted anywhere like he has been here. What then should we do? John sends them back to their ordinary lives as changed people. He sends them back not necessarily to try to change the world on their own, not necessarily to assume a new set of spiritual practices and ambitious projects. Nope. John just told them to do what they've been doing, but do it better. Do it more honestly. Do it as an act of service for others. In effect, John challenged his original audience and all of us here to write relationship with God and with one another. A call from the wilderness to make room for the sacred in the ordinary. 
As important as this experience with John is, we know, and John knew, that this isn't the end of the story. We know that a to-do list from a prophet cannot sustain us in a life lived fully before God. The prophet is there to help us make some room in our lives to receive the Messiah, the Messiah who will bring a baptism of spirit and fire, the very breath and power of God to bring joy to the world for all times. The American way is that we have an unalienable right to the pursuit of happiness. The God way is sacrificial love. In John 15, 11, Jesus said, I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. The difference between the American way and the God way is that happiness that is demanded from life never becomes joy because it's pursued with a self-centered focus. Richard Rohr writes, the joy that the world cannot give always comes as a gift to those who wait for it, expect it, and make room for it inside themselves. This is a receiving not a taking. You do not catch a butterfly by chasing it. You sit still, and it alights on your shoulder. It has chosen you. That is true joy. John the Baptist, in his unconventional way, is trying to help us make room to receive the Messiah in our ordinary lives. When we are intentional about how we move through the world and how we treat other people, we make a little room for Jesus. When we are courageous enough to ask the question, what should I do? And when we patiently listen for God's answer, we make a little more room for Jesus. When we remember that the church is a gift from God to help each one of us along this journey of transformation today and forevermore, we make even more room for Jesus. Tom Long tells a story about the church he joined when he moved to Atlanta years ago. At a new member's dinner, the pastor had the people go around the table to introduce themselves and say a little about why they had joined the church. Some noted the excellent children's programs, which gave their kids something to do after school and in the summer. That kind of thing helps out moms and dads, you see. Some noticed the convenience of the church's location, the proximity to their home, the good parking. Still others appreciated the organist and the lovely music. Finally, it came around to a man who told the group that for more years than he could remember, He'd been addicted to drugs and alcohol and had been derelict in his responsibilities. But through this church, he found the power of Jesus to turn it all around. And that's why and how he became a member. The new members sat feeling sheepish. We came for the good parking. He came for salvation. John the Baptist reminds us that the Messiah will come down into the most ordinary of lives, 
in order to make the people and their gifts shine more brightly with that radiant hope that comes from knowing that Christ Jesus is the Savior of the world. The most wondrous gift is waiting to be received by each one of us. That gives us more than enough joy to light a candle. Will you pray with me? We thank you, O God, for loving us so much that you would send your only son to that humble, dirty stable, that he then would love us so much that he would die on our behalf, giving us abundant life here on this earth and forevermore. Amen.